I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. You know, growing up multiracial and um, at the intersection of a bunch of identities that make it kind of difficult to navigate the world, I've always felt strongly that we should build a better society that doesn't just drop people off a cliff. So how do we need to get there? Um, What do I have at my disposal? Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. This week, I'm talking with Asia Ray, a neurodiversity rights activist and the founder of the Raising Luminaries Movement and Books for Littles website. Through these combined endeavors, Asia curates lists of engaging children's picture books for parents, teachers, and caregivers to discuss hard topics with kids and aims to empower the next generation of kind and courageous leaders. As an autistic, multiracial person, as well as the parent of both neurodivergent and neurotypical children, Asia's perspective is invaluable and powerful. I believe that open, vulnerable, and frank discussions can change the conversation around neurodivergence and challenge the cultural power structures that exist. In our conversation, we tackle many hard topics, including the importance of questioning our own biases and assumptions what it truly means to lift up and support marginalized and targeted members of our communities, why Asia believes some language surrounding neurodivergence, including the phrase I use, differently wired, is problematic, and what is the hierarchy and why it needs to be smashed. I appreciate Asia's perspective and the way she is boldly moving forward to shift paradigms. I hope you find our conversation as thought-provoking as I did. Well, hello, Asia. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really excited to learn more about your work and to share your work with my community because I feel like I get requests all the time 
for resources to have really important conversations with our kids. And when I discovered Books for Littles and the work you're doing, I was thrilled. And so I'm really happy that you're joining me today. So I would love if you could just take a few minutes and just introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be doing this work that you're doing. Sure. Um, So I run the organization Raising Luminaries, most of which is using children's books as a tool to start talking about difficult conversations with your children, uh, younger children, like zero to eight, because I find that parents get a little bit like tense and frustrated about talking about topics like race, death, sexuality. And growing up, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, which was very like, don't talk about things kind of, (laughs) Mm -hmm. don't talk about things kind of time. Um, And we also have parents who have been talking about these things, but they can't talk about them outside of their own families. So making these conversations easier by just, you know, you get the book, you open the book, you start reading this book, and then that naturally kind of flows into a conversation. Um, particularly with neurodivergent kids, because a lot of parents who are neurotypical want to like have like a face-to-face conversation where they're like, this is how we have conversations. And by kind of doing, it's more of like parallel play. You're reading the story together. There's no expectation, um, no performance when you're reading a story with a child. So you can kind of read these books, use declarative language. Like I noticed that this person is being picked on because of the color of their skin. And it makes it a lot easier, particularly for parents who have never spoken about race or these kinds of more taboo topics, I guess, Mm -hmm. in some circles. Um, The other things that we do are the Student Ignition Society, which is creating resources for caregivers and educators to talk about these topics beyond books. Um, We have like toolkits about immigration solidarity, Indigenous Peoples Day, that kind of thing. And how did you, well, first of all, just in listening to your answer, also as someone who grew up in the the 80s, I think so many of us don't know what we don't know. And so we as parents are educating ourselves and learning. And it's really hard to sometimes to know how to start those conversations when it wasn't modeled for us, you know? Yeah, so I was really lucky that I had a parent who was willing to talk to me about anything. So it's that paired with the fact that I, I feel like there's, there's some level of willing to look at things from an outsider perspective when you're an autistic person. So you're like, well, does that tradition actually make any sense? Does it, does it fit in with the values that I hold Um, as opposed to just following tradition because we see the crowd doing it. So it's a little bit easier for me to talk about things like sex workers with children Um, talking about things that a lot of people are like, (gasps) so this is a really good way for me to model that for other people be like, you know, we did it. My children did not explode Right. Right. Like they're they survived. They're very happy and healthy. And we have a really good relationship with our kids where they're very comfortable asking us anything. And I think that's from these years of opening up these discussions in terms of not knowing what to talk about. That's kind of the the trick about what we do is, you know, we meet people where they're at. Some people want truck books featuring girls of color, which used to be pretty rare when we started back in 2014. And now we're like kind of steadily ramping up on that. But while you're there talking about girls and trucks and people of color, um, then you click through to the rest of the website and you see like, oh, there's some other things that other parents are talking about with their kids. Not everyone is, particularly white families tend to wait until their kids are much, much older or just never talk about race. And there's a little bit of 
peer pressure and seeing that other people are doing it that kind of pushes them a little bit farther into their discomfort zone um, and being like, oh, other other parents are talking about this and my kid's going to be left behind. Yeah. And I imagine just in the past year, well, certainly in the past election cycle, but in the past year with the events of the summer and just more conversations around Black Lives Matter that I bet a lot more families have been coming to you as a resource. Yeah, it was it was funny because before 2016, talking about neurodiversity, disability, race, immigration, um, those kinds of things, I kind of had to slip them under the radar, be like, this is a great book. And also, by the way, they talk about this. This is a good opportunity to talk about this. Now that we've got a much more awareness not only do we have publishers who are willing to publish about this, uh, because it, there used to be, Zeta Elliott talks a lot about gatekeeping, where um, we have people who, who, writers who want to talk about this, who are well-versed experts in talking about discrimination, but they can't get past, you know, the publishing industry, which is very white, the librarian and education industry, which is also very white. So we've actually had people seeking out that information, which makes it far easier for us to not only get these people published, but also put the right books in front of them, as opposed to, it, it was almost like a, right around 2017, there's a big, you can see almost like a huge change in who gets to write the books. Not, most people are still, it's mostly still white people talking about people of color, uh, neurotypical people talking about neurodivergent people. But um, there's a little bit more of a shift of like what we're talking about, as opposed to just white boys going on a hero's journey. Mm-hmm. So you introduced a word to me. Um, you don't know this, but when I was researching um, raising luminaries in your work, this term of the hierarchy, I had never seen that word before. Um, and you talk about smashing the hierarchy. Can you define that and explain what that means? Yes, I want to give credit to the woman who actually came up with it. Um, Elizabeth Schisler Fiorenza, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, she was a theology feminist. And she came up with this term that is basically the the word for intersectionality. You know, like we have the concept of patriarchy, which is people assigned male at birth and, and cisgender males tend to have more power. They're presumed to be more competent and kind of there's this mandate of heaven that they should be in charge because they're more capable. Same thing with being neurotypical over neurodivergent, being white over a person of color. So what we study in particular, because there are... There are organizations kind of like mine that talk about, you have to talk about hard things with kids, but they're very single identity focused. There are people who are like, we have to talk about race with kids, but they're also not talking about, say, fat phobia and sexism. So it kind of, it kneecaps them because if we're going to still position one identity as superior to the other, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot there because how are you going to disengage people from the entire concept that someone can be more deserving of life and rights just because of how they were born or how they identify. And I can see why they want to do a single narrow focus because it's far easier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but if we don't, if we aren't willing to slow down and really examine the biases, even within anti-bias work, all we're doing is basically using other targeted identities as a footstool to empower, you know, your, your preferred group that you want to boost. Um, so it is rare to find a book that doesn't um, 
isn't problematic in some way, which is always annoying when someone's like, can you give me all the best books? I'm like, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> what are we talking about here? So, um, I mean, there's a lot of principles, you know, like you look at like the Black Lives Matters principles and um, I think it's Tima Ukun who has like a white supremacy culture. Like there, there are practices that we just take for granted, like, oh, this is the way that humans move and progress and, and learn things. But if you look at these principles, they're all transformative um, and they focus on like, okay, instead of quantity and covering everything, you can cover like you can cover just race and children's books or just disability and children's books. But also you just have to be mindful of the other identities. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have to be like, okay, who is missing from this, this roster of speakers or who's missing in this panel? Um, who are we assuming is like the headliner? So I found that the, basically the easiest way to do it is find the person most impacted by these issues. Like when we're talking about, say, discrimination in the workplace for neurodivergent people, who is more impacted by that? It's going to be someone who's probably transgender, like a black person. And it, it's not like you are either neurodivergent or something else. There's always going to be many people who are at the intersection of these identities who are hidden. And it's almost like they don't like I hear a lot from particularly white people with a microphone to boost other people being like, well, I just can't find these people. Um, they're definitely out there, but, but again, there's that gatekeeping issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily we do have resources now. I mean, <laughs> social media is kind of a, a dumpster fire, but it has given people who can't afford say a, dom- a domain name for a website. It has given them a boost in getting some visibility. Uh, there are still a lot of obstacles. So I think People are just assuming they're not out there because they can't find them on social media. There's still a lot of obstacles in terms of um, just general abuse that you face for being someone who is generally considered the other on social media. Um, I left social media last year because it's horrifying and mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but for instance, um, pass the mic on, I think it's pass the Instagram. mic on Facebook. Oh, do they have Instagram too? I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, they have this, you know, this rundown of... Black, Indigenous, and people of color who are autistic. And like, you could just go down that list and follow them and learn from them and, you know, pay them if they educate you and compensate them and boost their voices. And that is like a really easy, simple 10 minutes a day kind of action that you don't have to do outside of your home. You can do also while you're raising young children. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's great. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. 
Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. You know, I know that you have a goal of raising neurodivergent leaders. And my audience, as you know, is primarily parents and caregivers, both holistic and uh, neurodivergent, uh, who believe that difference is not a deficit. Um, They believe deeply that our kids are here to do big things in the world. Um, So I'm wondering what you think are the most powerful ways to raise our kids to have that agency and that self-knowledge to grow up into these empowered humans who can become these leaders. What can we do when our kids are little? Well, first, just to clarify, it's not just raising our divergent leaders. It's raising, like, we're still looking at this from a down to the roots, radical concept of, mm-hmm. of leadership. So it's it's more of a universal design. We're talking about raising leaders. They don't necessarily have to be neurodivergent, but a truly transformative process of raising le- leaders doesn't exclude neurodivergent and disabled kids from becoming leaders the way that we presume that for some reason they would be. There's some really amazing neurodivergent leaders out there. Mm-hmm. So first of all, we have to remove the concepts that we're starting out with in terms of who do we assume to be competent? Who do we assume to be the other? So like, for instance, my kids right now we're homeschooling during the pandemic, but when they were there, the entire curriculum is for literature is designed on heroes and basically exceptionalism. Um, They call them classic stories. And by classic, what they don't even realize is they mean classic European stories. So how are we whitewashing things and and saying, this is the way all things are when we're really saying like, this is the way one narrow culture defines it. Um, So opening kids up to that is, is fairly easy using books, right? Obviously you're going to have a harder time finding books published by and about other cultures that are not non-white. But that that's a good starting point just to point out to kids, like what you're told constantly in the media and in school is not actually the only 
truth and it's not the only way of being. Um, it's not a superior way of being. So dismantling those basic foundations of how we're assuming all of humanity is. Um, like Grace Lee Boggs talked about to create the next revolution, the next social revolution, you have to think about what does it actually mean to be human? And we have to question that. Does being human mean leaders are someone who give out commands and everyone follows? Is that what it means to be in relationship with each other? Or are there other ways of seeing it in non-white cultures, in collectivist cultures particularly? Being a leader means someone who gets down into the ground and like lifts everyone else up. So we have to start to question that. And you can't question that until you actually learn from people outside from where you are. Um, there's a few other things that we kind of untangle from there. But that's basically the, the concept of find out who's most impacted by the challenges in society, those people who are multiply marginalized, presume competence. And there's, I mean, <laughs> we saw at the Capitol building, I guess it was a week and a half, two weeks ago now, that like people are very scared of the concept of globalism, the concept of seeing everyone in the world as a brother and a sister, as a part of your family, and not only not only supporting and caring about and treating as human the people who you're directly related to or the people within your local vicinity, which isn't to say that um, hyper-local work is very, very important. We need, to, we need to act much more locally than we are, um, much more deeply with the people around us. But that concept of globalism, why is it so scary to so many people in the United States? And what do we need, our, need to teach our children about it? Same thing with, you know, religion and things like that. Like, how can we talk about religion and find our own personal values, even within other religions that we, we don't really understand. And how can we understand them? Because the more you understand someone, the more you love them. And it's really hard not to love someone if you understand them. Um, so that's just seeking to understand people. Like why the, the people that I find the most repugnant, <laughs> right? Like why are, why do you believe this, right? Go in with some curiosity as opposed to like a arrogance of assuming that we're we're right and we have to fix everyone else make them more like us hmm. so you have so many great resources first of all um listeners i will have a bunch of links in the show notes pages because there you know you have six kids books for trans day resilience um you have six books for sudden unschoolers talking with kids about the gender spectrum there's just so many great resources on there and you specifically you said you know this is for really baby through around age eight. Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer, especially like, I feel like preschool, like that is just such an amazing age for kids because they, they recognize difference, but they don't assign value to it. And so I'm just curious to know more about the opportunities for our, our little kids and why you really focused on this time of life. Um, Honestly, I focused on this time of life because this is what my kids' ages are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like as my kids, my kids are six and eight. And as they approach, as the, the older one is now moving into graphic novels, um, and I can't keep up with them. He's reading one or two books a day. And then the younger one, he's, you know, he's aging out of picture books. He's aging out of books that are short enough that we can kind of sum up an experience and really dig deep into conversations over the course of a couple of hours so the main focus there, I mean, a lot of people will tell you they focus on um, early childhood because that's when bias sets in. And that's mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. um, it's more of like I had young children at my disposal and this seemed like the best tools to use. 
Um, and like, if my goal is to raise kind children, which my goal was back in like 2014, and that swiftly expanded to courageous because you can't have courage without, you can't have kindness without courage. Mm-hmm. That's just niceness and niceness is trash. So like, if we're going to have kind and courageous children, what is the best way to do it? And the best way to raise kind and courageous children is to do anti-bias, anti-oppression work um, that kind of just naturally flowed in based on the concept of having a kind kid. I think about the parents who show up to my community, especially I have a Facebook group that's, you know, they may not have even heard the podcast or read my book or kind of get the philosophy behind Tilt. And Many of them have kids who've been newly diagnosed and they're grappling with labels. They are identifying, you know, my child is level one this or high, you know, functioning labels and all of these things. And so I'm always trying to meet people where they're at and also um, introduce actually, you know, functioning labels, uh, you know, the autistic community is very against and, you know, here are some resources and that kind of thing. I'm just wondering if you have resources or ideas for parents who are listening to this and they're having some light bulb moments and realizing not only do I need to share this stuff with my kids, but I need to do my own work. I need to kind of explore my subconscious biases or just stuff that I haven't thought about. Um, You mentioned the social media campaign uh, of sharing the mic, um, which I think is great. Just following lots of people and people of color, people who are different from from who we are, and learning about other perspectives. But do you have other just ideas or thoughts about how parents can start doing the work themselves so they can show up in a better way for their kids? Yeah, so there's a few different ideas behind that. Um, One of the reasons that we focus on books and young children is because within our society, particularly for people who identify as women and mothers, Um, there's this expectation that you do not do anything for yourself. You only do something for the betterment of your children and you're somehow selfish or evil or something. If you, you know, pee with the door closed. So if, if we can't, we can only do so much, like make sure to take care of yourself, parents. And like, that just doesn't work. You can shame people. You can give them affirmations, but that's just trash unless you give them the resources to actually do this work on their own. So where people are at is they want to raise leaders. They want to raise kids who are going to be able to survive in a new economy and a new new way of being. And there's a lot of fear there because everyone's worried that their kids are going to fall between the cracks in that expanding wealth gap. So if we get people where they're already looking, they're already looking for resources. And children's books are very quick resources. Like a picture book doesn't take that long to read. So we're meeting people where they're at and the, the entire secret, like, honestly, I'm just going to give you away the secret. It's not about the kids and it's not about the freaking books. That's why it gets a little annoying when people are like, tell me about the perfect book. Like, no, it's not about the books. (laughs) It's about by educating our kids, we're educating ourselves. Like if we're going to open a book about um, how sex workers deserve, deserve dignity and life, it doesn't matter what we do for a living. We're still humans. And you tell people like all the other kids know about this all the other kids are talking about sexuality, but you have to talk about it with your kids. And then you just have to cram it, right? Like you have to go on Wikipedia and learn some stuff. And you have to like, just read the process of reading the book together with your kid and discussing it. And that's a very relational, um, the, the approach right now in our schools is there's a person with all the information, they relay it to the younger people who have less power, but that's not how actual learning really works. 
Um, so right now we're homeschooling and my kids mutiny and take over the class maybe three out of every five days. And that's totally cool because it doesn't matter what they want to take over the class and teach me about. We create conversations and we generate information, not generate, we're not just making stuff up. We generate questions that we can go seek together. So by the process of doing this work, parents are parents and caregivers are just kind of forced to learn about this work Mm -hmm. because you don't want to raise a bigot, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think Mm -hmm. anyone wants to raise a bigot. It's people want to raise kids based on their own personal values. And foundationally, as humans, we're social creatures. We want to raise children who can engage with society. And to do that, we need to teach them something. And to do that, we need to come along with them. And that's also the transformative education it involves intergenerational learning and support. So that's just kind of kind of come a little bit naturally. Not saying that parents don't have to step a little bit outside of their comfort zone as well. But, you know, there are these, these studies on influence. And if you get someone to sign a petition about, like, I care about the climate or whatever, you come back a week later and you say, would you be willing to put this billboard in your, in your lawn that says, hey, slow down when you're driving to keep, you know, the streets safe? And people are much, much more likely to say yes to that if we kind of planted in their mind to care about other people, to care about the climate, even though it's a different issue. So it's going to be very difficult to start to identify yourself as someone who picks up a book about anti-racism, reads it. And then the next time you see a march that's happening down your street or next time you see legislation that's going that, you know, needs support, it's going to be very hard. It's going to be a dissonance for people to be like, no, that's not my problem. Um, so just by doing these little itty bitty things, you end up growing. That's the that's the courage element of it, mm-hmm. right? You, you end up growing more courageous because a lot of people don't say, they see someone getting arrested for a Black Lives Matters um, protest. And like, I could never do that. I'm not an exceptional hero human being like that. But it turns out that a lot of the people who started out reading these books are the same people four years down the line who are, who are putting their bodies in harm's way to protect the most targeted people. Mm-hmm. And it's not something, it just becomes natural. It becomes a part of who you are. Hmm. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. 
However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. So I'm wondering, um, with Raising Luminaries, I just have this feeling that you've got big plans. I might be wrong, but it seems like you, you, this is a movement, it's a revolution, and I'm wondering if there's anything that you're thinking about that's coming up or that you're hoping to do that you'd be willing to share with us. Sure. Um... What I like to do is I go over my um, my goals every week, and I like to keep my primary goal crashing the sun into the moon because that makes everything seem much easier. And I said that correctly, the sun into the moon. In proportion, everything seems so much easier compared to that goal, right? <laughs> so <laughs> after that, it's, you know, keeping it down to the next 20 or so years, raising kind and courageous humans. I don't know what I'm going to do after my kids leave the house. I can figure it out later. But for now, that is the goal. And just like any kind of anti-oppression work, you kind of have to keep a little light on your feet, which is hard to say as an autistic person. I want to have the next, like my entire life every day planned out for routines for the rest of my life. That's very comforting. But I also know that it's my obligation to be a person of the world. So you have to kind of keep light on your feet. You know, you know, growing up multiracial and Um, at the intersection of a bunch of identities that make it kind of difficult to navigate the world. I've always felt strongly that we should build a better society that doesn't just drop people off a cliff. So how do we need to get there? Um, What do I have at my disposal? You know, when you're a young parent with a two and a four-year-old, the only thing you have at your disposal is like a couple of cloth diapers and two screaming children and it's really easy to be like, I can't, I can't do anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where education comes into play, where you see like, oh, there are also black mothers, like black single mothers who are doing this. And it, it, it would be very easy for me to opt out as a person with a partner. So we actually do have to do more. Like we have to take the resources. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old who, can, who I can screen books and I can really analyze what engages kids. And then I can share that with the world. And I can use that platform to boost other people who, don't, who aren't boosted. Um, so it's just, you know, if you're, it it could have been something else, it could have been gardening, it could have been cooking shows. It doesn't really matter what it is, as long as your, your, your goal to, I guess, crash the sun into the moon or raise kind and courageous children long-term, um, is there. And every decision you make along that way aligns with that. Yeah. 
Oh, so good. So how can we, the Tilt Parenting community, there'll be a lot of listeners for this episode. Certainly, I'm going to direct people to your resources, but how can we support the work that you're doing? Um, So what I really love is to start questioning some of the assumptions that we go into. And obviously, you know, like you said, you have to meet people where they're at. Questioning, like, why do we need to use euphemisms when we're talking about neurodivergent people? Like, why are people still using special needs? Mm -hmm. So let's start questioning that. Like, as far as I can tell, almost the entire, at least, I don't know, the more radical progressive side of the neurodivergent community prefers neurodivergent. So why are we still using words that kind of tap dance around that? Mm -hmm. Um, Why are we not using the word disabled? It's not a dirty word because disabled means society through the social model of disability. Disabled means that just the society is not designed for you, Mm -hmm. right? I have a neurotypical kid and some of our routines are not designed for him, right? So within our household, there is no disability if we, kind of design it the right way. Um, We can also start questioning, like when we look at that, the study of the intersection between neurodiversity and other targeted identities, um, Tony Atwood, I think I have very strong feelings about, why is it okay to examine autistic girls through the lens of the other and use all these very, very sexist presumptions and stereotypes? But we would, I like to think that most of your feminist listeners would be up in arms if he talked about neurotypical women that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to start asking, what are the foundational presumptions that men like Tony Atwood are making about women and for women that just might be something he grew up with, but isn't true for all of humanity. And then primarily we need to start not just reading about, but compensating um, autistic people of color and targeted like multiply disabled people of color Uh, Sorry, yeah, and multiply disabled neurodivergent people. So listening to own voices, people, first voices, like um, autistic typing on Facebook, who has, I'll send you the link so you can put in the show notes, but they have a list of black indigenous people of color who are autistic to follow. I don't agree with all of them. Like Mm -hmm. some of them, like, you know, we don't, we don't all have the same foundational values, but I can see the humanity in them. Mm -hmm. And if the more people, it's just like the more books you read, the, the easier it is to tell what's nonsense, Right. Hopefully, I don't know if you're not like getting into a QAnon hole, but like, but the, but the more like, the more people you start to be like, okay, what is your personal experience? Not what are your weird theories, but what is your personal experience? Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to see like, oh, what is, what actually is the common link that ties all autistic people together? Not from like a Asperger's supremacy thing and functional label, but like, what is like, what ideas do we have that separate non-speaking autistics from speaking autistics? And how can we read more non-speaking autistics so that we can be like, oh, wait, we actually have everything in common except for the speaking part, mm-hmm. right? We just communicate differently. So definitely following things like the autistic while black hashtag, um, which is, it's strange how much the autism community is still controlled and the loudest in the white male sphere, the, the, particularly the cisgender ones. Um, Kirima Trevik coined autistic while black. She runs the blog Intersected. She is a um, black, multiply disabled woman, neurodivergent, who raises uh, a black autistic son. And she's and they're Muslim. And like there's so many intersections and mm-hmm. she's able to tie together the the challenges and the history of growing up and then raising a son in a way that, say, like me as a as an Asian, as an Asian parent who who lives with so much more, many more privileges. Like I don't have to think about it. I don't know, even know to tell you about it. Um 
why don't we start boosting that, start um, supporting people who are multiply targeted like that, right? Um, following the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network, which is a very intentionally, and again, it's, it's a slow-moving organization because they're very intentional about the intersection of indigeneity, um, people of color, black autistics, and, um, and of all genders, right? Or <laughs> targeted genders. Um, and then, you know, going to your local neurodiversity library, which, um, so Lee Wiley Mitsky is an autistic mom with an autistic kid. She developed the neurodiversity movement. They're popping up everywhere, or the neurodiversity library movement. Mm -hmm. So there's little micro libraries you might be able to find, or if you have like an, uh, an autistic community, you could start one. Mm -hmm. And we have the resources out there. We have the books that you could include in it. You know, we have these little free libraries. Why not? see who's running your local one and see how you can support them. Because um, I, I don't know if this is a surprise, but it is very uh, hard to like go out into the world and speak to people. If, if you're neurodivergent, be like, I have this library. So like, Hey, holistic people come help. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. Talk about the weather and make small talk with people so we can make our connections. Um, and then just, you know, try, try and just keep focusing it. And the, the most key point is when someone says something that really just, gives you that sense of fragility like that, like, <gasps> which, uh, which always feels like righteous anger at first, whenever you start to feel like, oh, that, no, not me, or like, oh, that's not me, or I don't mean it like that, or like, I do that, but, but there's a good reason for it, or like, how dare they, just sit with it, don't email them, <laughs> don't like, don't scream at them on the internet, don't hunt down their personal Facebook profiles and like private message them, that is so creepy, um, <laughs> just sit with it for a little bit, talk with a friend, and then come back and be like, okay, what did I learn from this? And sometimes, yeah, people just say stuff that is just actively not aligned with your values. But that profoundly dis uncomfortable place is a really good place to go into. Um, I try to go there, you know, consistently. Like, mm -hmm. it's, you know, you have to come up with a balance. Do you, do you try and seek out people that you disagree with? But you really have to sit with that discomfort and not put that discomfort on the people who are most targeted mm -hmm. and then just keep following that person because it's not the people that you completely agree with that you're going to learn from. Mm, so good. And yes, such a good reminder to lean into that discomfort. And I mean, our bodies give us information all the time. So when we get that, that hit, that feeling, that's a sign to pay attention. And there's something worth exploring here, right? Yeah, there's, there's, it's like, um, like a vaccination, right? It, there's, there's pain, but it's a good, like, you're like, oh, this is a good thing. Like, mm -hmm. this is my body learning. This is my brain learning how to deal with pain. And, you know, if you, to, to get a little bit Buddhist about it, like we're discussing with our kids, like there's pain and there's suffering. And those two do not have to be intertwined. Like you can be profoundly uncomfortable and feel the pain watching George Floyd being murdered. And you can still learn from that and you can you can send that back out into the world in the form of of action like mobilized action instead of just wallowing in the pain and feeling bad mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's that that is a directive for people who are not black by the way mm -hmm. black people can process that however they, however they need to but it's important that we don't appropriate that pain it, and i see that a lot for like you know the autism warrior parents who are like leech enemying their kids and supporting autism speaks like you have to not appropriate your children and instead of like instead of outing them into the world and talking about them and kind of profiting not profiting financially but profiting socially by having a child with a targeted identity 
instead of appropriating their challenges, be like, okay, what can I do to be an accomplice for you, right? Give them as much agency as possible early on. Mm -hmm. And also don't just assume that they're incompetent and they're going to, and if they're incompetent now, they're going to be incompetent later. Like there's this assumption that neurotypical kids will grow. Like just because they eat with their hands now doesn't mean they'll eat with their hands when they're 20, but we don't make those same assumptions about autistic and neurodivergent and disabled kids, which is very bizarre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you so much for all of that. Um, So much food for thought Uh, listeners. The website for Asia's um, raising luminaries is booksforlittles.com. And where else can listeners connect with you? Um, I know you said you're off social media. So are you completely off? Um, is so for I'm, I am on Patreon. People pronounce oh, Patreon. Okay. Patreon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm on there. That's where um, it is nice <laughs> because I do all this work for free mm-hmm. and I'm trying to support my family. But um, they, I'm trying not to be complicit in social media, even though it would be a nice way to get people to see when I post new things. That's mm-hmm. also, we, we have enough people who stay on social media just to follow us. And I don't want to be complicit in that. So Patreon, um, this year, as my kids age out of books for littles and we, we explore different, we're always making up new inventions and things. We'll, this year we'll be exploring newsletters, maybe a podcast, ridiculous cooking show. I don't know. The, the All of the above. I, <laughs> yeah, right. Like <laughs> the point I want to make is this doesn't have to be limited to just books. Um, so we're exploring all kinds of things this mm. year, and that's going to be something that I keep people updated on over in Patreon. Awesome. Well, um, so listeners, please check out the show notes page. I will have links. There's so many wonderful resources on Asia's website, so many book lists. I kind of got lost exploring them all. It must be a lot of work to curate these lists and do all the research you do. Um, I'll have links for the Patreon as well, because that's another way to financially support the work that Asia's doing. And I just want to say thank you so much for this conversation. Um, really grateful that you took the time and kind of walk us through all this and just for the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. 
you get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.